G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Welcome to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Do you have a mate that doesn't seem great? Maybe their team is up, but they're still down. A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You Okay? And welcome to the conversations that could. I'm Dermot Brereton. This is a show where we'll be talking to some elite sportsmen, some people who are elite in their field, and we'll be talking about how mental health has touched them, how they have given back, how they help in the area, and all those things that we can all learn so much from. And I am absolutely rapt to have a guest tonight who probably needs very little introduction. But here's a little reminder of his credentials. Between 1988 and 2002, he played 282 games. Gee, that's a lot. I'm almost started speaking to you then, but that is a lot of games. He played those 282 games for... North Melbourne and the Sydney Swans, picking up the honours for best and fairest at the Swans in 99 and for the Roos twice. That's a fair resume, three times. And he was part of the Kangaroos' triumphant premiership team in 1996. And just a heads up, listeners, we're going to head into some challenging emotional territory with Schwader. So if today's discussion brings up tough feelings or experiences and you need some extra support, we urge you to reach out to someone you trust or contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Wayne Schwass, good evening. Term, uh, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be introduced from one of my childhood heroes <laughs> as a Mad Hawk supporter as a young kid growing up. Thanks very much for having me on the show. My pleasure. Well, well, can I ask you then, if, if that is the case... Why is it that in only my only a 211 career game, it's severely outranked by you, why is it then that you would, you're one of the few who's won up on me when you stomped me at the oh. MCG? <laughs> you, you, you bring this up every time I see you. Because you're still ahead. I'm sure it was an accident, Dan. <laughs> I'm still on the scar. I'm sure it was an accident. You may not remember this. You remember that incident. I don't yeah. know if you remember this, and I don't know if we're on. We, we're here to talk about this, but I remember a game at Princess Park. I was playing for North I know Melbourne. Where you're going with yeah, this. you do, don't you? Yeah. It was a muddy day, Correct. and I was an 18 year old brash, skinny little runt from Warrnambool playing against. I used to love the Hawks so much yeah. that I knew. Remember, we played in the days where they'd have the letters up on the scoreboard, and That's the letter right. corresponded to a team. Yeah. Whenever I was playing another team, I always knew Hawthorne's letter because I followed the score during the game. It held with you that long, yeah. even though you no, were it took playing. Me, took me two years, but it was this day which made me change my <laughs> affinity with Hawthorne. <laughs> You and I somehow came to be lying on the ground yeah. about a half a metre apart. Yeah. Here's one of my childhood footy heroes, the kid, Dermot Brereton, famous number 23. And somewhere in my very empty brain, I thought it would be appropriate to pick up a clump of mud <laughs> and throw it and it hit you right in the middle of the forehead. And before I knew it, you grabbed my jumper, you slid me in, our heads Made contact, reasonably forceful, forcefully, and you pushed me back. I had claret come down through the middle of my eyes, and from that moment I thought, I hate Hawthorne. <laughs> <laughs> I hate Hawthorne. 
Isn't it great? I mean, it's not great, but it is great that we can laugh about. Of course you can. Hell, it was a very brutal time to play football. It was a very different game of football back then. It was, was, look, I have enormous respect. I don't watch a lot of football now that I've finished working in the media, but I have enormous respect for the athletes that play the game now. Absolutely. But I'm very... I'm just so happy and grateful and thankful that I got to play in the periods that I played because probably like you, you know, in my first seven years, I had a full-time job and I played football. We would train Tuesdays. What was that job? I had a sales, a sales rep for yep. Kerry Good. Um, oh, yeah, who was a North Melbourne man. He was man. a North Melbourne yeah. man. I wouldn't say I worked a lot, but I had a job. <laughs> um, but we, we trained Tuesdays, Thursdays. We'd play on a Saturday and then we'd have a recovery run on a Sunday. Sunday. Oh, yep. I can remember Dennis Pagan bringing in a Monday night compulsory training session. And there was outrage? It was a revolt. <laughs> it was unheard of. But it, we, we were allowed to we, – we played. We had a lot of fun. And even I can recall where we we would bump into each other at, at nightclubs. You, yeah. you had this great affinity with opposition players after you played the game. Um, and I had to stand out of footy for nine months because I was zoned to Fitzroy. So I played football with Trinity Grammar. I would train with North Under-19s, but I couldn't play because I wasn't cleared. And I remember going and watching games where Shimmer was the captain at North. And they would play, and then we'd go into the MCG. We They might play Melbourne. There'd be Robbie Flower talking to Wayne Schimmelbush. There'd be John Kennedy talking to the coach of Melbourne. Might have been John North at that time. And even the umpires were in there socialising together. And that was, you know, they're the special memories that... Were they good or bad times no, I in loved, that regard? No, I thought they were fantastic. Yeah. I really... I've, I've shared this story a lot. The umpire I loved playing with while umpiring was Peter Cameron. And the reason I loved Cameron... Good bloke, Cameron. Great bloke. Every now and again, he'd sit there and say, you might want to go and get a kick, son. You're yeah. not having too good a game. Or I'd sit there and I'd give him a spray. He'd come back and give me a spray as well. He but talked it was to done, you like did, a man, didn't he? He spoke to you in the same way that you spoke to him, depending on what you said. Yep. But I respected that. So I guess what I'm saying is I had a healthier level of respect for an umpire that I was able to engage with. Sometimes yeah. it would be funny. Sometimes I'd be critical. He'd be critical back. But then there were other times where I'd do something in a game of football. He'd just walk past me, pat me on the back and go, mate, really well done. That was a great piece of play. And I miss that in football. I think we had a greater level of engagement with the stakeholders of our game compared to the modern game of football now. So we're going to talk a lot more about the football and where it's taken you and and your realisation of where your stance is in life and how you sit emotionally, mentally, on all those areas. Tell us what you're doing now, though, before we got to that. Because you were, gee, a really good caller of footy. You've been in and around footy for 30-odd years. Mm. And you're no longer involved with the game, as you said just off air to me. Life evolves, life moves. Where are you at now? And priorities change, Derm. Look, if you had said to me in June of 2002 when I retired that 17 years later I'd still be working in the game that I love and earning an income out of the game, I would have said, yep, I'll sign up in a heartbeat. Let's get it done. Mm. So uh, footy career, almost 15 years, worked in the media for another 17. So I feel very fortunate. 32 years of my life have been involved and around the game of AFL football. So I feel very fortunate. But in 2017, it it, it dawned on me, Derm, I had a a, a role, a sales role with Telstra dealership, a very good friend of mine. Um, I wanted to have something else outside of football, so that if decisions are made where your income is impacted because people want to employ other people within the industry of the media, 
then I had something to fall back on. So you empowered <clears throat> yourself. Yeah, because I, I lost a couple of significant opportunities through no fault of my own and no input to the decision. So I can respect that. Yep. And what it made me realise was that I was exposed in the sense that 100% of my revenue was linked to the media, but I've got no influence and no input into the decisions that are made about my media career or, or positions. So I made a decision after the second time to go and get some form of employment outside of that, doing something that I enjoy, and I'm a salesman by trade, um, and I did that for a number of years. But in the last 12 months of that role, it, it this 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 agitation started to really come to the surface with me. And the agitation was this. I worked within the telecommunications industry. I could sell any business like the one that we're doing this program with today, a network, uh, a phone system, a form of technology, a platform. And I would walk out of that sale. And the only benefit that I would get would be my salary and commission if I hit target. And I've helped the business be more efficient and more effective. And the thing that became really important but really obvious to me was I haven't had a positive impact on anyone in that business's life. So this led to a a sort of experience, quite a reflective experience for 12 months where I started to really think about what is my purpose in life? What do I want to do? What would give me real meaning? And for a long time, I believed that my purpose in life was to play football. What I've since learnt was that was a wonderful experience that has given me the vehicle to fulfil the reason why I'm here now. And that is my purpose in life is to do the work that I do now, which is the reason why I no longer work in the media, and that is to run my business, Pucker Up, and Pucker Up's mission and vision is to end suicide. And the way that we do that is to educate people preventatively so we give them the skills, the confidence, and the, and the toolbox to stay healthy. I can't... I can't sit by Derm and not do the work that I'm doing because it's very personal, but I don't know of anything else outside of being a dad to my three beautiful kids that is more rewarding, more uh, more meaningful, and, and just gives me purpose every day to keep getting up and doing the work that we do because we consistently have a positive impact on so many people that we touch. But I can't tell you the number of times that there are people within our communities, some I know, some I don't who are alive, who are with their families, who are raising their families, who are happy and healthy, and some of them might still be struggling, but they're alive because of what Pucker Up does. Because you touched them. Correct. And that's why I do what I do. What then have been the most important moments of your life? Oh, leaving home as a 17-year-old kid from Warrnambool and leaving his family and coming, coming to Melbourne to pursue a dream. I was, I was ready to go in the Army at the age of 16. Um, I didn't know that North Melbourne, Ron Joseph, Greg Miller, CEO and footy uh, footy manager were coming down for four weeks to watch me play. I was 16 playing football then with South Warrnambool in Hampton League, um, ready to join the army. North Melbourne intervened. I parked the army and didn't really know what I was going to do with footy, but wanted to follow it. Mum and dad gave me that opportunity, so I'm forever grateful with that. Premiership in 96, special moment. You know, a 14 and a half year career that I'm really, I'm really um, proud of. There's so many moments that I can look back on. You know, one that comes to mind, there's only one player that I've ever played with or against, that I've, and I've played with Lockett, I've played with Kelly, um, I've played with Ruse, um, I've played with Archer and Stevens. There's only one player that I can honestly say I've ever found myself just being another spectator. I was a spectator on the ground, and that's Wayne Carey. Yeah. I got to see 
him at his peak for years. He really was that good, wasn't he? Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Um, You know, John Kennedy Sr., um, I've had a number of influential coaches, but I I can honestly say this. He coached me for two years. I love the man. Absolutely love the man and still do because of the person that he was and the influence he had on me. Isn't it amazing how... And and some of my mates said to me, you know, that they for Alan Jeans. Yep. And they asked me, what made the emotional time? I said, well, he was a surrogate father. Yeah. And, and he brought me on, and and a lot of what I am today is because of the way he shaped me. Mm. And the and the great coaches not only can coach football, but they shape the person yeah. to be a better person as well. Yeah. And I I don't know I don't. So I didn't know yet. You might have had enough for that to happen with John Kennedy. Well, but, no, Kanga's, or did you? No, Kanga has. Kanga's, Kanga's still has. There's this legacy, honesty, respect. You know, silly as this sounds, one of the things that I really loved about Kanga as a young kid, he never criticised anyone individually. It was In public. No, in public. Yeah. And in my time at North, he never did that that I saw. It was always about team. It was always about us. It was always about group. Um, and that sort of set a really expect a really good expectation with me. Um, you know, I just love what he embodied as a person. You know, when I first came to um, North Melbourne, I came down the, the, the summer before 1986 and we did a 15K time trial in the Dandenongs. 15? Kanga had had a, a pacemaker put in. He ran the course yeah. on his own to see if it was hard enough. And then when we did the 15K time trial, he ran it with us. We all knew he had a pacemaker. That was the type of person that he was. Unbelievable, man. So as a young kid, you're looking up going, this bloke is amazing and crazy. Yeah. I'll do whatever he says. The closeness of the personalities of the seriously great people, great coaches. Alan Jeans, for being coached hundreds of games by him, I have never seen him, I never saw him criticise anybody individually in front of the team. He'd take you behind closed doors and give it to you yeah. and you were the only other one in the room. Yeah. That would happen. Yeah. And then, But he had this way of saying somebody's done this and somebody's done that and he'd look around at everybody <laughs> slowly and say... If the cap fits, wear it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you, and consequently, there was only one bloke who made the misdemeanour, but fifteen went. Oh, that's me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so he covered them all, but they never once individually no. tore someone and down. I, I, I really respected that. Um, and and listening to you talk about Yabby, um, it sounds similar to Kanga, and you, and you know Kanga as well too. But Kanga had this. He was one of the most amazing orators. Yeah, his delivery, Wender. Use space, when to raise the voice, when to be really forceful with the message, but then also gentle. Yeah. And for a young kid who's, you know, I, I here's another story. I remember sitting on the couch as a Mad Hawthorne supporter with my mum the day that John Kennedy was announced as North Melbourne's senior coach. I will never, ever play football for that man ever in my life. And who was my first coach? John Kennedy. <laughs> the old Kanga. Yeah. So they, they, they were great moments Um from a, 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 a personal perspective, you know, winning a premiership in 96, you know what that's like. Yeah. It's hard to describe to people, but that's a cherished memory. And then, you know, defining moments, um, nervous breakdown in 1993, hiding my conditions for 12 years, asking for help six years after I was diagnosed, and then ultimately going public with my story um, and beginning to get my life back. They were key moments in my life, Dan. 
We're going to talk about that soon. But just before we go to the break, you mentioned that you, you might have gone to the Army. Let's just mm. talk about that for one minute before we go to the break. It would have been a pretty formidable foe, Wayne Schwoss. There's a bit of Maori in you. That, that's that warrior Maori. Uh, would it have been the Australian forces or the New Zealand? Oh, no, no. I was definitely going into the Australian Army. Uh, I just hadn't told my dad that, who's a very proud Maori and Kiwi. So that would have made for an interesting conversation. No, I, I just I just felt that that was something that I wanted to do. And I think even at a young, immature 16-year-old sort of mentality, I felt that that discipline would be good for me. But I'm, I'm pleased that I didn't make that ultimate decision. I'm Dermot Burton, and our guest tonight is Wayne Schwoss. Thanks, Walter. And this is the conversations that could for Are You OK? Brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. Dare Ice Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the conversations that could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it. But a conversation could. Ask Are You OK? The conversations that could, we are with former Sydney and, well, mainly North Melbourne champion Wayne Schwoss. And you have uh, gone on record to say that, well, North Melbourne, yeah, they basked in the grand final glory. You could be a champion, but so close to be somebody who was breaking Mm. at the same time. So let's start to drill into this. When did you become self-aware that, how do we say it without being no, offensive? That, the wiring is not yeah. quite right. Um, 26th of July, 1993. 98 games of footy into my career. Fifth year of senior footy. Vice-captain to Wayne Carey at North Melbourne. Um, 12 months away from winning my first uh, best and fairest with the Kangaroos. 23 years of age and I'm driving home on a Monday night. <clears throat> pardon me. And uh, training in Arden Street, living in South Yarra with my fiance at the time. We'd been engaged for six months. She'd moved down from Sydney. And I'm driving home and it's about nine o'clock at night, similar to what it is outside now. And it was dark and I had a cap on. And I need to give this context. And I talk about this very honestly when I engage people as a mental health advocate. Up until this moment of my life, my dad, who I love dearly, and this is not to be interpreted as any blame or responsibility to my dad because he's been a wonderful man. I've got so much love for him. But up until that moment of my life, I'd only ever seen my father cry once when his mother passed away. That's the only time I'd ever seen my dad vulnerable, the only time I'd ever seen him show that emotion, the only time that I saw him externally show um, a fragility because my dad is from the old internalise everything we don't talk about sort of. That's that era. Demo- yeah, very much so. And that's not a criticism. So I'd grown up without realising at the time, thrust into an AFL environment, that you've got to have this, you know, you need to be strong, competitive, aggressive, courageous, um, arrogant, all of those characteristics to be a competitor. But we were also discouraged to show vulnerability and emotion. And if you cried, well, there was this association to weakness. Yep. So that's the context. So I didn't realise it at the time, but my thinking was if you if you behave that way as a male, then you're weak and you're soft. And if you're a teammate, then I'm going to question whether I can trust you. And if you're a teammate that behaves that way, do I want to play with you? And if you're an opponent and I see that behaviour, then I'm coming after you. I don't think that way anymore, but that was my mentality. So as I'm waiting for these uh, set of traffic lights to go green, for, for reasons beyond my ability to comprehend, I started crying. I just burst out crying, Derm. It was, it was really raw. And you're behind the wheel. I'm, I'm, in front of, I'm driving my car. Had the cap on, as I said, 
And I, I was confused. I was very scared. I didn't know why it was happening. But what I did know was this is not how a man's meant to behave. And this is pathetic. Still felt that way. Uh, it was immediate, Dermot. Yeah. It, it, I was overcome with this shame and guilt because of what was happening. I grabbed the peak of my cap and I pointed it as far as I could across the side of the outside of my head and I tilted my face in towards the middle of the car. So traffic couldn't I didn't see want you. people to recognise me. I couldn't come to terms with the fact if anybody saw me and recognised who I was, that, that runs the risk of losing respect. <clears throat> I drove home, I parked the car and I sat in, I sat in the car for an hour and a half because I couldn't stop crying. I, I couldn't bring what was happening in the car. I couldn't bring myself to take that inside and show my fiancé because, again, my thinking was she'll see me as weak, lose respect, pack her bags and go home. So I sat in the car for an hour and a half and the only <clears throat> I was only able to go inside an hour and a half later because I had no more tears. And <clears throat> what, I, what I should have done was walk in there, sit down with my fiancé, Mac's wife, Rachel, and say, this is what's just happened. I don't know what's going on. I'm really scared. I'm a bit frightened. I need help. But what I did was I didn't say anything. Just internalise. I didn't say anything for a very, very deliberate reason. I didn't have the ability to understand what am I feeling, how am I thinking, and what's my language to communicate that to somebody that I trust. So I was conditioned, taught, and trained to be a very good football player. But I was discouraged and conditioned to disconnect emotionally. Now, I'm not blaming anybody. That was just the nature of the world that I lived in. So I could talk to you about football because I was comfortable talking to you about footy. How the hell do I talk about feelings and emotions and then find the language that allows me to articulate that? So I didn't say anything for two weeks. But but what you make is a very important point here that our parents, similar scenario, never saw my parents hug. Yeah. Never, never saw that type yep. of thing. So... It's not as if they weren't doing or trying the best for us. No doubt. You no just doubt. have to respect them that the world they come from, which Correct. passed on to them. And if there's one thing that you can look back and recognise, they broke a cycle that was committed to them. Mm -hmm. That is for my betterment. Yep. They've succeeded. Yep. It, it might take a couple of generations to break that. Mm -hmm. Let's not think we can get it all done in one generational jump, yep. but we're better at it now. But they were doing their best with what they knew. Oh, look, I totally agree with that, uh, Dermot, in, in their own ways. I mean, they do the best they can with limited opportunities and education experience. Our parents were conditioned by their own experiences and their parents. That gets handed down. Um, you know, the mere fact that you and I are on a program now dedicated to these type of conversations is a reflection of how far we've come. Mm. We need to continue to go much further down the, the road with that. Um, but, but you know, I knew my parents loved me. There was no question. I'm a massive hugger. I tell my kids <laughs> all the time. My, I've got a 14 and a half year old son. Um, you know, they, my kids live with their mum. We separated uh, last year. Um, and, and I FaceTime my kids. I speak to my kids every day. Text messages, phone calls, uh, FaceTimes. And my son is 14 and a half. He's in the one-word grunting stage at the moment. Not a lot comes out of <laughs> his mouth. But what he does know is that every time I speak to him, every day, I tell him how much I love him, how much he means to him, and I will continue to do that for as long as I'm on this earth because I want my son to grow up understanding, thinking, believing and behaving ultimately that this is normal behaviour for men and women, girls and boys. So that's what I'm trying to give my son as well as giving my daughters. I just didn't have that when I was younger. And what I, you know, I guess through this conversation and the work that I do, Derm, this is not a male or female issue. This is a human being challenge. But we live in a world that 
tends to accept and respect females and women for being more talkative, emotional, laughing, listening, loving, crying, all of those type of things. But not always. But we also live in the same world that can judge males very differently if we show vulnerability and we may cry. And that still exists. Of course it does, which is one of the reasons why we do the work that we do. If there's any males of any age listening to this program tonight, I want to encourage all of all of them, find your language that is relevant for you, that allows you to talk to people that you trust about feelings and emotions, especially when we're under stress. Because what I've learnt, Doom, is the importance and value of asking and seeking out help when we're under significant emotional stress is both life-changing and at times life-saving. How would you deal being the being you are now? Mm. And you were an older senior player yep. and you saw a clone of Wayne Schwass, 23, 24. He's just got three votes on the ground. He just kicked three or four goals off the wing or off the on the ball. Somebody had said best on ground. He'd gone in, you'd sung the song. And that person, that younger Wayne Schwass, was sitting there after getting all those accolades, playing a wonderful game, is sitting there in front of his locker, taking off his boots with tears in his eyes mm. because of the breakdown of those emotions. Yeah. What would you say to him? Well, that was me. Mm. That, I, I know it was that, you, yeah. What you've just described yeah. was me. So how would you, the, the older Wayne Schwass, how, what advice would he give him? I, I, I would, um, I, if, I, if I saw that and I was in in a football environment, or I was in a workplace environment, if I was in a family environment and I saw that in someone, I wouldn't offer advice straight away. I'd quietly and calmly walk up next to that person and I'd sit, I'd ask them, would you mind if I sit down? And I'd just sit there and say, is everything all right? Would you like to have a talk? I may not have all the answers. But you're asking permission for every Correct. step along the way. Correct. Um, it, it's It's... It's a. Di- I love the work we do. It's hard sometimes, Derm, and we don't win every battle. And one of those battles we lost was with our great mate Spud. Mm. You know, we can't we we can't lose the war because we've lost one battle. And for every time uh, we hear stories of people tragically losing their battle with life, it's a reminder that we've got to roll our sleeves up again and continue to push forward with this. So for me. It's about opening up this environment which is safe, supportive, non-judgmental and respectful that allows somebody that I've identified that something doesn't seem to be right here to give them permission, if they feel comfortable, to talk to me about what's happening. I may not be able to solve it, and in fact, my job's not to solve it. I may not have the answers for it. I may not have a solution for it. But what we can all do is we can be someone who's prepared to sit and listen and allow that person to talk to us about what they want to talk to us about. And I'll share I'll share a story with you, Derm, as to why this is so important. Almost three years ago, I was asked on behalf of a great mate of mine I've known for 30 years to deliver a eulogy at the funeral of his 21-year-old son who tragically took his life. Yeah. And it was a massive funeral, 1,300 people. I've known this young boy, a mad Sydney supporter uh, since he was five. Loved the Swans. Went to the wake afterwards and there were seven, eight hundred people. There were people everywhere. And 
not surprisingly, you know, people come up to me all the time, can I have a chat, do you mind if I work? Yeah, no problems. If, well, you're a beacon for them, so... You, but that's okay, that's it goes with territory the territory, now. right? Yeah. But yeah. If, if it's just you and I in a room that's empty, sure. If it's you and I in a room and there's 30, 100 people, sure. If there's a room of 800 people, sure. If you want to talk to me, I'm going to listen. So this young boy came up, he was 18, came up and said, do you mind if I have a chat? Don't know his name, don't know his story, don't know where he's from, but knew he wanted to talk. I said, sure, mate, no problems. What do you want to talk about? He goes, not here. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I don't want to talk here. I said, where do you want to talk? And it was an automatic response which suggests to me he picked his room out before he came up and asked. He goes, that room over there. So I said, okay, no problems. Let's go and have a chat. So I followed him in, knew that he wanted to talk about, but not sure yeah. what he wanted to talk about. The moment he walked in, I walked in behind him and I closed the door, this kid burst out crying uncontrollably, raw, shaking, red, tears, everything. Now, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it right now. And for a lot of people, that could be a really difficult, challenging situation to be in. And it, and it was, because I could clearly see very quickly this kid was under stress. Now, I've got a choice in this situation. If I sit there or if I had have sat there and said, cut it out, get yourself together, Harden up, toughen up, be a man. That's not how a man behaves. Mm. I'm actually saying in a really vulnerable moment, don't be a human being. But I didn't do that. What I did was I was able to understand very quickly, as I said, this kid was under some sort of stress. I didn't know where he was on the spectrum, so how far down. I've since learned that this kid was in crisis. When you're in crisis, one of the things that can happen is people start to think about hurting themselves. So if I give a really negative, toxic old masculine message, I could be the reason why this young kid thinks about hurting themselves. Yeah. So I just said to the young boy without knowing any details about him, I said, listen, mate, I don't know what's upsetting you right now, but I just need to know from you what you need from me right now so that I can help you. If you want me to give you some time, I'll give you some time. If you want some water, I'll go and give you some water. I'll get you some water. Or if you'd like me just to stay with you, I'm happy to do that. It's okay. I don't know what's happening, but it's okay. And the young boy, through all of the tears and the raw emotions, said, don't leave. I said, I'm not going anywhere. I said, you take as much time as you need. It's okay. I'm not judging you. I'm going to stay with you until you feel like you're comfortable enough that we can sit down and have a conversation. 15 minutes goes by. We eventually get him to a stage where he feels comfortable enough to sit down. I sat down with this boy for 90 minutes. And I said to the young boy, if you're ever in that situation, don't fix it, don't solve it, and don't tell people what to do. They've asked you to listen. That's the job. And don't bring any judgment and don't criticise people because they're doing a really good job of that themselves. So my job in that situation was just to ask questions which prompted the young boy to start to talk to me about what was going on. My first question was, help me understand what's, what's so upsetting for you. He goes, two years ago at the age of 16, my dad died of a heart attack. I said, man, that must have been pretty tough. He goes, it was and it still is. I said, okay, I'm really sorry about that. Who do you live with? He goes, I live with my mum, my grandmother and my older sister. I said, okay. I said, have you ever talked to your mum? He goes, no. So it's easy to sit there and say, well, why haven't you done it? But he goes, no. So I go, okay. So I park whatever I might want to say and leave it there. I said, why haven't you spoken to your mum? He goes to me, I don't want to be a burden. You're a father. I'm a parent. When our kids are hurting, we want the same thing. Mm. We want our kids to bring that to us and we'll do our best to solve it or alleviate it or eliminate it, whatever it might be. But this kid for two years didn't tell his mum because he didn't want to put that responsibility or burden her about his own pain and loss. Okay, what about your sister? She's a year older. Have you talked to her? No, why? She thinks I'm Superman. Okay, that's an interesting answer. What does that mean? Help me understand that. 
He goes, Superman helps everyone. He doesn't need to be saved. He's This boy sounds like he's already adopted the alpha male Correct. position in the household and he's not capable Co- or equipped Correct. For it. And through no fault of his own or anyone that he lives with, his mummy, sister, his grandmother, his dad tragically passes away. He's automatically elevated to the man of the house. And he's not equipped. No, and he's living in a world that is telling him every day what he needs to be and what he's not expected to be. That's called gender conditioning, right? So I said, okay, about his sister. I said, what about your grandmother? You ever spoken to her? He goes, no. Why? She's 65. This will kill her. So I said, if I've heard this correctly, I still didn't know the boy's name by this stage. I said, if I've heard this correctly, the people that love you the most that you live with, you haven't spoken to them once about what you're living with. He goes, that's correct. I said, okay. I said, what about your mates? He goes, no, I haven't said a single thing. I said, why is that? He goes, because I don't want to lose their friendships. And if I tell them what I'm going through, they'll see me as weak and I'll lose those. I'm not prepared to lose it. Okay. Do you work? Yep, I'm an apprentice. Okay, have you told your boss? No, why? Because I don't want to get the sack. So I said, if I've heard everything correctly, you haven't told a single person about what you've gone through since your dad passed. He goes, that's correct. And the next question, this conversation, Dam, I've shared for almost three years every time I speak because this has profoundly impacted me at a personal level but it's had an enormous impact on me as, as a professional. And I said to the young boy, I said, why are you telling me? And he looked at me and he got emotional again. He goes, because I know you won't judge me. Here's a kid at a wake, 18, who finds the courage to come up and ask an older man who he's never met, can I talk? Without knowing what the response would be. It could be negative or it could be accepting and say, yeah, let's talk. That's courage. He didn't know the response that he'd get, but he took the chance. And sadly, this boy told me, I was the first person he told about what he went through because he didn't believe that I would judge him. People live in fear of judgment every day. They're petrified of saying something because they don't want to be seen as weak. They don't want to be seen as soft. They don't want to be told to harden up, be a man, stop behaving like that, don't be a sook, all of these unfair expectations. So what people do is they sit there paralysed and don't do anything. That's a great word, paralysed. It is. I was paralysed for 12 years, Derm. I was diagnosed on the 9th of August 1993, won a flag in 1996, anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, and in the third year of a four-year suicidal battle. And I was a premiership player. And two people knew at the ground that day. And I didn't tell anyone for 12 years apart from my ex-wife, Harry Unglick, who's the doctor at North. Wait, great fella, He's my second dad. This man's still my GP 35 years later. And I love him dearly. Um, Tom Cross, who was the doctor at Sydney, who I finally, six years after Harry diagnosed me, asked for help. And then a lady by the name of Lisa Lampy, who was a professional, professional, a psychiatrist in Sydney. For 12 years, I didn't tell a single person outside of those four people. We need to digest that. That's some pretty amazing stuff, mate. A, a young lad who doesn't want to be seen as weak, mm. who's actually braver than the bravest men oh, you'll ever meet. Yeah, correct. And he's cocooned his yeah. his emotions. That's exactly what he did. That is an amazing story, mate. Yeah. Well, let's take a break. I'm Dermot Brereton, and our guest is Wayne Schwoss, and this is The Conversations That Could, brought to you by Dare Ice Coffee. When your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? More with Swatter in a moment, and if our conversation has raised some issues with you, please, please call Lifeline anytime on 13 11 14. Welcome back to The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. When your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. 
ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the conversations that could for Are You OK? I'm Dermot Breton, and my guest tonight is former North Melbourne champion Wayne Schwoss. That was an amazing story. Mm. You know what? I automatically, my go-to emotion is I want to meet this young man oh, he's, <laughs> he took aside. His name's Jack. Um, I, I've shared this story as I've done tonight with you, Dermot. I, I did it uh, about year and a half ago with Will Anderson on his Willosophy yes. podcast. Yeah. And I said to Will, very very emotionally sharing the story. I said, geez, Will, I wish I knew this kid. wish I knew his name. I wish I knew where he lived. And I want to know if he's okay, but I don't. Podcast gets uploaded and then a week later I get a series of direct messages on Instagram. And I've still say, I've saved these direct messages. And the first, the first message I got was from Jack. Quote, unquote, that conversation at my mate's funeral saved my life. Isn't that fantastic? So it oh, it's, to, it's, it's hard and it's raw and oh, no, it's, but it's life. Brilliant it's beautiful. There's a save. Oh, totally. This kid found the courage and strength to ask to talk. And it's not about me because this is about all of us. We can all do this when the moment arises. He found someone who was willing just to sit there and allow him to be a human being. I said, how are you going? He goes, really good. Do you talk to mum, your sister and your grandmother? Yep, all the time. Does that help? Yeah, I don't have to pretend anymore. Plus, they know what I'm going through. What about your mates? We're even tighter. They had no idea. What's happened with work? He goes, my boss gives me time off when I'm not coping okay emotionally. I said, that's beautiful. He goes, but you know what? The thing that I'm proudest of the most, that I've seen a psychiatrist every month for the last two and a half years, and I'll continue to do it. So there's a young 21-year-old boy in the Macedon Ranges, healthy, happy, alive, doing the things that he wants to do. Because on the day and the moment that he needed to be allowed to be a vulnerable, emotional human being, he found the person that allowed him to do it. That's all, That's all I did. That's all I did. So this kid's doing great, doing great. And through all that, the, the weird component to it is he's actually the alpha male now. Yeah, and, <laughs> and he, I, I, I would, look, I don't want to speak on Jack's behalf, but I would assume that given what he's gone through, if he hasn't already, he will at some point. But I'd bet he's probably already done it. He's done something similar for someone else someone who's else. really needed yeah. it too because he got what he needed. Yeah. And and this is a trap that so many people fall into. People don't want to lose control of their emotions. People don't want to cry. But it's part of the human experience. Someone might come to work one day and get upset for reasons that we might not know. If we say, cut it out, that's not how we behave here, we're telling them not to be a human being. How are we not to know that that person's marriage may have just ended? A child may have been diagnosed with a life-threatening condition. There might be financial, there might be relationship, there might be alcohol or drug issues. We laugh, we cry. We don't apologise when we laugh. We need to stop apologising when we cry. So many people, you watch TV, when someone cries, first word they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. Stop it. They do too. Stop it. Because yeah. we're being taught to say sorry when we cry. We, we, my opinion, we need to stop saying sorry when we get upset because it's part of being a human being. And if we don't think that's important for us... It has never, ever been more important for our children to see their parents emotionally expressive and, and, and uh, emotionally connected and expressive because what it does, it gives our kids permission. Well, if it's good enough for mum and dad, then it's good enough for me. And my job, and I'm a flawed parent, flawed parent, my job is to empower our kids, including my son, to be emotionally connected and expressive for his entire life. That is the voice of Wayne Schwoss, and this is The Conversations That Could. Welcome back to The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? 
Welcome back to the conversations that could. Uh, are you okay? Thanks to Dare Ice Coffee, and we are with the wonderful Wayne Schwass. Now, I can pick up my phone. Well, I'm picking up my phone, and I have an endless list of people. And, and you do get to a certain status in life, a certain mm-hmm. position in life where you, you've you've lived enough life, you've had enough failures, you've had enough success that people look to you and lean on you. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps that's a form of leadership. As much as you can be a raggedy... <laughs> Butted goat on most occasions. People look at you, your friends for leadership. Yep. I've got so many complaints, so many of my friends saying, how am I going to get through this lockdown? Yeah. How am I to cope? Why are they doing this? Yeah. What, what, it, it should be a certain way. It's got to be different. I don't know what I'm meant to be doing now. Mm-hmm. Now, you would have some serious... Uh, input in this area, you would you, you. I imagine your phone would be running hot with your uh, with the people you know yep. who are asking you for advice and techniques. Yeah, they they are, Dan. But I've also I've also got to do this myself. Yeah, I'm a small business owner. You know, twelve months ago, I thought my business was dead. Mm. Thought we were done. We've done a remarkably good job. I'm so proud of our small but passionate team to turn things around. But <clears throat> I. I, I and let's just give it another that pucker up. Pucker up, correct. Pucker up. Yes. So, um, what what advice would I share with people? You know, Derm, this current lockdown I've coped really well. Lockdown five, no, really struggled, really struggled. What's the difference? Well, what I what I I guess I'm on a 26 year journey, Derm, and that continues for the rest of my life. And I I, I invest a lot of work into my mental health on a daily basis, but. What I've focused on through this current lockdown, and I had this conversation uh, coming here tonight with my partner, because she works in the fitness industry, so she can't work. She's got no income coming in at the moment. So I'm checking in with her, how are you going? What I've done very consciously for lockdown six is focusing and concentrating on what I have control over. What do I do to look after my mental health? I can't control what the the government's doing at a state or federal level. I can't control what the media want to... um, beam out of the TVs or put on the news in the newspapers or radios, whatever whatever it is, that's all noise. So if I focus on that, then I'm falling into the negativity of that type of conversation. That's not helpful for me. So what I do is I don't watch the news. I don't even, I'm, you know, there was a suggestion we might come, come out of lockdown on, on uh, tomorrow. We've got another two weeks. I'd already been preparing. If we come out, great. But if we don't, I'm up for it. So what do I do? What's my advice? Focus on what we've got a level of control or influence over. And for you? Yes. And that, that is? That is sleep. The number one thing that I have to give myself is sleep. If I don't get sleep, I get tired, I get agitated. Periods of overwhelming sadness come in. That is the gateway to anxiety and depression. So if I don't get sleep, I'm increasing the probability of those conditions coming back in. Sleep. The single greatest thing we can give ourselves. Not uncommon for me to go to bed early. 7.30, 8 o'clock. If I've had a big day, if I've got a big day coming up. Gee, I was 12 the last time I yep. went to bed at 7. Give it a try. <laughs> we have this attitude, she'll be right, suck it up, push through. It's not sustainable. <laughs> and especially now, that's something we can control. Go to bed early. What's I mean, Exercise is really important. Body reacts incredibly well physiologically. Serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin when we move our body. I cycle. I don't care what people do. I just care people do. Walk, run, swim, jog, yoga, Pilates, weights, whatever it is. Move your body regularly. 
Diet. When I say diet, these are all tools that are in my toolbox right now. When I say diet, I'm not saying lose 15 kilos. I'm saying what do you consume? What do I eat? What do I drink? What do I consume by way of content? And what are my relationships? Food, fluid, content, relationships. And I have ended relationships respectfully because they've been negative and toxic. They're not healthy for me. So I make decisions about what I'm consuming all the time. And that, that's male and female? Totally. Hmm. Totally. Uh, and, and do I wish things were different sometimes? Yes. But if relationships aren't supportive, accepting and positive, then I will make conscious decisions to end relationships if they are negative and toxic. And I won't apologise it for it because my mental health is the most important thing that I've got. You can be physically fit and emotionally unwell and it will present itself physically. And yeah. I know this to be true. Yeah. So I was physically fit, but I was broken emotionally and it impacted my physical health. It's not worth that. What are the other things in my toolbox? I've spent six years reconnecting emotionally. So I now have an ability of what am I thinking today? How am I feeling about that? What's my language and who do I need to talk to? So I talk to my partner every day. I talk to my twin daughters when it's appropriate. I talk to my dad. And when it's this type of conversation, it's via text because that's how he's happy to talk about it. So that's cool with me. I talk to my GP all the time when things are good, when things aren't so good. I'm lucky to have a chairman who's a mentor. I talk to him about business, but he's also taken me out of my business for two weeks after Spud's passing because he could see me deteriorating. Another mate of mine who played football, if he doesn't see me post on social media over the course of a week or he hasn't received a text message, he'll ring me up. He'll go, no bullshit. I haven't seen any commentary from you. How are you going? And don't, don't, don't tell me any crap. I need to know you're okay. So people can tune in. What do you post on? Well, I, I'm on Instagram. Um, I have a personal Instagram page, but Pucker Up is where I'd encourage people to go on Instagram, Facebook yep. and Twitter. Um, I, I, I have developed an ability to um, sort of assess what's going in, on, my, in, in, on and in my life. And if I'm starting to feel stressed, I don't ignore it anymore. What's causing the stress? What can I do to minimise it? Or who do I need to, to see to deal with that? Um, and then the, the, other, the other really important thing for me, Derm, I lived most of my life worried about what people would think, including you. And I've worked with you and I've played against you because respect was really important to me. Yeah. The sing one of the single greatest things that I've done for myself and my mental health is I cry. I'm not afraid to cry anymore. And yeah, I don't, I don't apologize. Absolutely. I don't apologize because I don't believe I've got anything to apologize for. That keeps me healthy. It's a natural emotion. But it's also this beautiful opportunity where my kids – especially my son, has seen his dad cry openly in front of him and not apologised for it. In fact, we talk about it regularly because I want my son to grow up knowing that he can behave like that. You are the first person to bring out a salient moment. I can remember 1977, the one and only time I've ever seen my dad cry. Wow. It was the day his mum died, my, my grandma. And I remember being, you know, a 12-year-old boy. What are you crying for? And he said, it's all right to cry when you lose something you love. There you go. Hmm. Yeah. Final question before we let you go. And I'll use myself as the base example. I am the classic person, the Aussie guy who, until, until this stuff touched me, mm. I was the guy who went, Nathan Thompson, Wayne Schwass, mate, you're playing great footy. Mm. You're getting paid well. You get drink cards. You drive <laughs> lovely cars. Girls swoon over you. Where, where's the problem in your life? Mm. I looked... That, that way until I started to get touched by it. What would you say to that young man 
who can't recognise it, what would you say? Empathy? or How do you speak to him to say, hey, open your world? I would say something like this, Derm. I would say if you have never been exposed to this and you've never had to deal with this, fantastic. But don't be ignorant because I can guarantee you that someone that you love and you care about today is living with this type of condition. So ignorance or a lack of understanding is not an excuse not to support somebody that you care about. I hope that you never have to deal with this type of insidious condition. But what I do know for a fact, we're all directly or indirectly touched by mental health issues because people that we work with, live with and love are dealing with these conditions. So when we get educated and we understand more, we can support the person that we care about more. Wayne Schwoss, you were an outstanding champion as a footballer and you know what, as a person, I think you're even better. Ah, very kind of you, Derm. Thank you very much for having me on the show and I really appreciate the fact that Are You OK and Dare have invested into a really important program like this, so thank you. Wayne Schwoss, and if you're out there and you want to pick up a little bit more on some of Wayne's work, Pucker Up. Head to the website www.puckerup.com And if our conversation tonight has raised some issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can call 24 hours a day. 13 11 14. I'm Dermot Burton and we'll be back next week. And remember, when your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Thanks for listening.